0: Well, good morning. good morning. How are y'all again? Awesome. awesome, awesome, awesome. Well, I'm glad you're doing so awesome uh, because we have made we are working through the Bible, and we have made it to one of the the least awesome uh, couple books in the Bible when it comes to happiness and joy. Um, we are in um, Joshua and Judges, and we know that Joshua and Judges can be um, difficult uh, to read and difficult to get through because of some of the stuff that it contains. But we are a church that does not avoid anything um, just because it's hard or difficult or doesn't make us feel great inside. Um, we, 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 we hold all Scripture to be inspired by God and all of it to be true and all of it to be trustworthy and all of it to be for our instruction. And so we're going to look at these books today very quickly um, and we're going we're gonna to see what God is trying to get across to us in these books. Before we begin, let's open up in prayer. Father, we love you, and Father, we thank you. Father, I, I say it often, but Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through the scriptures. Father, we thank you that you have cared about us so much that you want us to know who you are and who we are and how, that we, how it is that we can have a relationship with you. And Father, you have done everything for us. You have paid the price for our sins. You have made a way for us to be forgiven, and you've never given up on us. And we thank you for that. We love you, Father, and we thank you for your love for us. Father, please guide us in this, in this worship hour and in this time that I'm giving this message that uh, I would speak your word truthfully and faithfully and that we would all walk away a, a little different by it and that we would grow closer to you and closer in our understanding of you. We love you, Father, and we thank you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so as you probably know, we're working all the way through the Bible this year a daunting task for someone like me who likes to go very slowly through books, which is why we're so far behind. Um, We spent a long time in Genesis, and uh, of course, then again, uh, two Sundays ago, we didn't have service because of the um, weather. Last Sunday, we had Easter, and next Sunday, we have homecoming. So um, we're a little behind, and so we're going to do a little catching up today. Um, We're going to be covering the books of Joshua and Judges today. Um, These... Uh, these books, the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books that Moses wrote are the backbone for the rest of the Bible. And uh, we're just getting out of those books and we're moving into um, Israel's earthly history as a nation. And we're going to look at, at, at what they look like um, when they first came out and first became their own nation. <clears throat> so there's one main topic that really stands out um, in the books of Joshua and Judges, and it is judgment. Um, it, when you read Joshua, the books of Joshua and read the book, book of Joshua and the book of Judges, one thing that's really going to stand out is God's judgment. Um, God judges sin. It's something that doesn't make us happy or feel good, but it's something that He always has done and He always will do. God has always judged sin. Um, we see God brings His judgment against large numbers of people. Um, It doesn't make us feel good inside. It bothers us. It makes us cringe sometimes. And and I think that's a good thing. Um, We shouldn't feel good about people being punished. We shouldn't feel good about people suffering. Um, That would honestly mean that we have something wrong with us. It means that we're made in God's image and we're like him. So what it means is he too doesn't feel good about judging people. He does the right thing even when it's hard. And we can all think of situations in life when we have to do the right thing, even when it's hard to do. So how many of you like superhero movies? Um, be thinking. Uh, how, how many do you, do you like uh, movies uh, about police officers, where they, whether it's reality TV or whether it's not, um, where they follow officers around and they're constantly in, in the face of danger? Um, how many like novels? where there's a hero and a villain. I think we all kind of like this theme, this good guy, bad guy theme. So who do you root for? Do you root for the hero or do you root for the villain? Um, Don't answer out loud. (laughs) But the question is, regardless of who you root for, if you really sit down and think about it, who do you really want to win in the end? Because, see, all of our novels and movies, not all of them, there are a few, but they're rare. Um, but most all of our m- novels and movies and comic books and, and, and everything, the good guy always wins, right? The bad guy has his agenda. He has his plan for what he wants to do, the evil he wants to do. But in the end, the good guy usually always wins, and the world returns back to peace and back to normal. But just pick one of those, one of those movies, one of those scenarios. Just think about one for a second. And imagine what it would have been like if the good guy had lost. If the, if the bad guy got what it was he was seeking for. Let's say that uh, Batman, okay, he's trying to save Gotham City from the bad guys. What if the Joker or somebody else really did kill Batman? What would the city of Gotham be like 10 years down the road? What would it be like 20 years down the road? If Superman fell victim to kryptonite and actually didn't get away from the kryptonite that he's so powerless against what would the world be like with no superman just just think it out x-men you got all the good guys bad guys what if the bad guys did away with all the good x-men what would the world become like it would become dreary and dreadful and awful would it not so how can, what, is, what is one word that can be used to describe the actions of the bad guy? Evil. And evil is sin. So what is it that makes the villain the villain? Sin. That's what makes him the villain. Even though it's not real, even though it's made up, even though it's a story, that's what it is. Sin. We intuitively know the difference between right and wrong good and evil. The Bible is God's revelation of Himself to us. God is without sin, is He not? Right? God is without sin. God does not sin. This book right here is God revealing Himself to us. Himself, who has no sin. So do you know what I find very interesting? That this book that's all about a God who has no sin... You want to know how much of it is is not about sin? Well, the first two chapters are about this world before sin. That's this much right here. This much. Can you all see that? This much is written about a world and God without sin. And this is the rest of it. And almost, you, it, it's, it's hard to find a page that does not talk about sin. Almost every page addresses sin. So if you take that in mind, what you need to walk away is God has revealed himself to us, but he's also revealed us to us. And he wants us. He wants a relationship with us. But there's one problem. There's one thing keeping us from him. And it's the thing that he's devoted almost every page in this Bible to sin. That's the one thing that he had to die for. Sin. That's the one thing that he had to come to this earth for. That he had to live a perfect life for. Because we sin. Adam and Eve, they sinned in the garden. And they were judged by God by being kicked out of the garden. And the man and woman now have labor, have to labor in pain. Cain did not rule over sin and killed his brother Abel and was judged by God by being banished from his presence. Then the whole world went into a downward spiral of sin, so bad that God judged the entire world through the flood in the days of Noah. But he spared the most blameless man on earth and his family. And what does blameless mean? It means he lived a life without sinning to the best of his ability. Obviously not perfectly. Obviously Noah sinned as well. But it said that he was blameless among all of his contemporaries, everyone alive at the time. He was the most blameless person on the face of the planet. But what happened after he got out of the ark? God told us he sinned. Even the best of us can't be perfect. We still sin. After Noah, God God called Abraham to go to a land that he would show him and that he would give him the land and make him into a great nation in order to point all the nations to himself. And what did Abraham do over and over again? Sin. Within three months, now hear me on this, imagine this. Within three months of God promising Abraham that he would have a son with his wife Sarah and that through her, God would give him offspring that would form a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. Within three months of that promise, Abraham gave Sarah to another king because he was afraid the king would kill him. He gave his wife away. The Bible shows us that we constantly constantly, constantly sin. His son Isaac fell into the same sins. Jacob constantly sinned, destroying his family, just like his father Isaac. And then we get to Joseph. Now, he was about as good a role model as you could come up with, Joseph was. I'll be honest with you. You read Genesis through Judges, and about the best person you can find to mimic is Joseph. But here's the problem. Even he was bitter and vengeful towards his brothers, throwing them in jail One of them, Simeon, I think it was, he threw in jail for two years. Two years. Because he did not forgive them for what they had done to him. Eventually, after the two years, he finally broke down and forgave them. But throughout Joseph's life, we see constant sinfulness. The sinfulness of his brothers, the sinfulness of Potiphar's wife, and of Joseph himself. Then we see the sinfulness of Pharaoh and of Moses. Pharaoh killed countless male Hebrew babies. Moses killed an Egyptian... And we see God judge Pharaoh, Egypt, and all of their false gods. Then God saves the Israelites by judging Pharaoh's army. And then the Israelites themselves becomes the one who constantly rebel against God. And we see God constantly judging the sins of the Israelites. He sends plagues against them. Three thousand are killed after they worship the golden calf. He sends snakes against them. And finally, he doesn't allow them to enter the promised land. They have to wander in the desert 40 years until that whole generation passes away. And he even judges Moses' sin by not allowing him to enter the promised land either. And so that brings us to the books of Joshua and Judges. Joshua begins with the next generation being allowed to enter the promised land with Joshua as their new leader and not Moses. The book of Joshua is full of bloodshed. God brought the nation of Israel into the land of promise and ordered them to kill everyone who lived there. In my mind... It was all about the nation of Israel. And the people who lived there were just innocent people who happened to be living in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's how many of us come to these books in our mind. Do we not? But that's not what God said. God had promised that land to Abraham 400 years earlier. But did you notice he didn't give the land to Abraham 400 years earlier? Why? He told us. Genesis 15:13 through 16, he says this. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterward, they will go out with many possessions. But you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Why did God not give Abraham the land 400 years ago? He said, because their iniquity, their sinfulness, their wickedness had not yet reached the point in which I'm willing to judge them for it. Because, see, God does judge sin. He always has and he always will. But he's also a God of justice and mercy and love and forgiveness and patience. God said, I'm going to judge the Amorites and all the inhabitants who live here with the sword, but I'm not going to do it for another 400 years. But because their sinfulness has not yet reached the point that I'm willing to do that yet. Deuteronomy 9, 4 through 6 says this. Now keep this in mind. God judged the Canaanites, the people who lived in this land, because of their wickedness. See, my initial coming to this story was, he's doing this for Israel because he wants Israel to have this land, and so he's just going to judge the people in this land with the sword for, for no good reason, in my mind. But he said, I'm judging them because of their wickedness. And he told Israel before they went in, before they went in, he told them, don't you ever forget Israel. Don't you ever forget. I'm not doing this because of your righteousness. I'm not doing this because of your goodness. I'm doing this because of their wickedness. I'm judging them because of their sinfulness. This has nothing to do with you. Otherwise, he would have done it another way. He said to them, when the Lord your God drives them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You are not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. I think God was extremely clear. He told them three times, I'm not giving you the land because of your own righteousness. I'm driving them out because because of their wickedness. And this is an important point you need to remember with God. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to give you uh, an analogy that I, I gave not too long ago. Um, Truman, you know, he had to make a decision that was by far had to be the hardest decision of his entire life. Here's a war going on, and he had to make a conscious decision to kill millions of civilians. 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 Bomb the entire, blow up the entire city. This had to be an enormously weighty decision for him. And he made the decision weighing the cost of what it would mean for the world to succumb to Germany and, and communism and this total dictatorship versus democracy and freedom. He was weighing the cost and he made the decision that it was worth it to make this costly decision of judgment against these people in this nation in order to win this war. What would have happened? What? How do you think he would have felt if after he dropped the bombs, killed all these civilians, the war came to an end, how do you think he would have felt if the United States Congress decided, behind his back, the Congress and Senate decided, okay, We're going to move in. We're going to take over the territory of Japan. We're going to hand it over to Hitler, and we're going to now push communism. How do you think Truman would have felt? Exactly. His mindset would have been, I didn't kill these people in order for you to go into their land and do the exact same thing they were doing. If that's what you're thinking, you've missed the whole point. I made a costly decision that was not easy for me, that I did not enjoy, in order for the outcome to be the best for all people. Not for you to go in and do the exact same thing. And that's exactly what God said to the Israelites before he led them into Canaan. That's exactly what he said. He said, when I take you into this land and give you this land and judge them because of their wickedness, you are not to begin worshiping their gods like they do. You're not to fall in and do the same things that they do. You're to be a people to me. You're to be different. You're to be the people that I desire to point the world to me. And he said, in the same way that I'm going to judge them, if you go in and do the exact same thing, I'm going to judge you the same way. He said, I'm not writing you a free pass. This isn't because... Because, you know, you're, you're a superior race to them. This has nothing to do with race. If you do that, the same thing that they do, I'm going to judge you just like I judge them. That's exactly what he told them. God had no desire for the Israelites to begin a campaign of world domination. Did you know that? He said in here boundaries for the nation. He gave them boundaries, clear boundaries, spelled out. In fine detail. This is where your boundaries will be. And you're not to go beyond them. This is not world domination we're after. I'm giving you the land. Marked by these boundaries. Because the people in these boundaries. Have grown in their wickedness. To the point that they deserve my judgment. I'm not just setting up some kingdom. For you to go and judge the whole world. It's my job to judge. <clears throat> and you also have to remember. That he waited hundreds of years until their sinfulness had gotten so bad that God felt that their punishment was deserved in relation to their sin. And you also need to remember this, and don't forget this. That was hundreds of years of people crying out for help from the people who were committing crimes that was not answered Because of God's patience. See, when people become wicked and sinful, they're not wicked and sinful to themselves. They're wicked and sinful to other people. You you can't create a scenario in which it's not. And so when wicked and sinful people are being wicked and sinful and harming and abusing other people, you also have those people crying out for help. And so God's always in a tight spot. We come to these books and we read them. And our first thought is, wow, man, God is harsh. How could, he, how could he be so judgmental? How could he be so harsh? And what we're not thinking about is all the people that have been crying out for hundreds of years for their rescue. That God is not given because he's being patient. And he is being loving. See, there's always a perpetrator and a victim. And God's patience with the sins of the perpetrators is always at the same time a delay in justice for the victims. And that's something that we must keep in mind. So to say that God is too loving to judge those who do evil is at the same time to say that God is too loving to judge to defend and rescue those who are suffering at the hands of evildoers. You can't have it both ways. After the conquest of Canaan, we get to the book of Judges. Once Israel moved into Canaan and killed many of the people groups living there, but not all of them, they were a leaderless nation. Now God was supposed to be their king. God was their leader. And He would have been. If they would have just submitted to him as their king. But they didn't. They did not obey God. And we see the same story from them that we've seen throughout the entire Bible so far. They sinned, sinned, and sinned some more. Joshua two sixteen through 19 says, The Lord raised up judges who saved them from the power of their marauders. But they did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods. "'Bowing down to them, they quickly turned from the way of their fathers "'who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commands. "'They did not do as their fathers did. "'Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, "'the Lord was with him and saved the people from the power of their enemies "'while the judge was still alive. "'The Lord was moved to pity whenever they groaned "'because of those who were oppressing and afflicting them. "'Whenever the judge died, "'the Israelites would act even more corruptly than their fathers.' following other gods to serve them and bow in worship to them. They did not turn from their evil practices or their obstinate ways. See, when I read Judges, I always thought about Judges, right? I mean, isn't that what you first think of here the book of Judges? You think Judges. You know, someone who would take a case and would decide the outcome. But that is not what these Judges were. These were warriors that God raised up to judge other nations. These were people that God raised up to bring his judgment against those who were doing evil. This is probably one of Israel's worst periods in their entire history. There was a constant killing of each other and worship of false gods. They completely abandoned God and completely abandoned obeying him. And the book of Judges ends with this verse. This is the last verse of the book of Judges. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Complete anarchy. Everybody did whatever they felt was right. They didn't go to God's word to see what was God had said, what was right, and what was wrong. Sin is determined by God, not by us. And God does not tolerate sin. This is where I and many other people have had a hard time with the Old Testament because it records in great detail God leading Israel into battle against the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and killing them. The reason I had so much difficulty with it in the past is twofold. The first reason is because growing up, I had created an image in my mind of God of one of complete love and forgiveness, devoid of any form of judgment and in in turn justice. See, I always thought that the only thing that God really cared about was what you believed about Him. You see, in the mind, I had separated belief from obedience. As if you could have one without the other. What was in your head was what was most important. What you actually did was just secondary. As long as you had the right understanding in your mind, you and God were okay even if you didn't actually obey him. The God I had in mind, in my mind, was a God who didn't want you to sin, but he was not a God who would actually bring judgment on you or punish you for sin. And I think a lot of people have that same image of God in their mind. He wants you to believe in him, and he doesn't want you to sin, but he's not actually going to judge or punish anyone who actually does sin. Which is why, when I chose to read the Old Testament for the first time, I was confronted with a God that did not seem to match the God that I had in my mind at all. And that's because the God that I had shaped in my mind was not the same as how the God has revealed himself to us in his scriptures. The God I read about in the Old Testament did not tolerate sin at all, and he actually did something about it. He didn't just sweep sin under the rug and pretend it wasn't happening. He actually punished people for their sins, even to the point of death. He judged sin on small individual scales and on worldwide scales. He sentenced individuals to death, and he sentenced the entire world to death through the worldwide flood. And then when I read the New Testament for the first time, I noticed the same thing. The same thing. Ananias and Sapphira, they were struck dead on the spot for lying to the Holy Spirit. There were some early Christians in Corinth who were participating in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner and did not repent. And God judged them by causing them to become sick. And some of them even died because they would not repent. And this is post-Christ, New Testament, early church Christians. And the scriptures are very, very clear that these were genuine Christians in Corinth. Saved, born-again Christians that God was judging and sentencing to death because of their sins so that, the scripture says, they would not be condemned to hell. So that they would not be condemned with the lost. And I noticed Jesus' teachings were constantly warning people to stop sinning and to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He said, Matthew 4, 17, From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And what does repent mean? Repent means to turn from. Turn from what? Sin. It's the only problem we have, is sin. And that's the only thing that God is telling us to turn from, sin, to Him. He told them that if their righteousness... Which is another way, what is another way of saying righteousness? Righteousness is, in essence, your obedience to God's commands. That's what your righteousness is. When the Bible talks about your righteousness, that's you obeying God's commands. He, Jesus said that if their righteousness did not surpass that of the Pharisees, that they would not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said in Matthew five twenty, for I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This sounds like a Jesus, a God who cares about sin. And he told them point blank that all people will perish unless they repent of their sins. He said in Luke thirteen, two through five. He said, and he responded to them, Do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Or those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Jesus said, every person, all people are sinners, all of us. And unless we repent of our sins, we too will perish as well, Jesus said. The entire Bible, from beginning to end, is constantly telling us how sinful we are. And I'm just going to put it clear, how hopelessly sinful we are. God goes through great lengths to tell us even the best of the best of the best who's ever lived on this earth still can't live good enough. We're all hopelessly sinful, all of us. And so that puts us immediately without hope that we cannot live perfectly holy, which is why we need someone else to save us us because we can't save ourselves, And God is clear that the one thing that separates from us from him is our sin. The reason that we're lost and are going to spend eternity in hell unless someone else saves us is because of our sin. The only person who can save us is Jesus, who came to earth, lived as a human without sinning and died on a cross for us. Now why did he die on a cross for us? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Why did Jesus have to come and die in our place? Because of our sin. What does both the Old Testament and New Testament talk about on almost every page? our hopelessly our hopeless sinfulness just the fact that we just we cannot not sin we can't be perfect and the fact that jesus has redeemed us and has offered us salvation in himself if we would just repent which means turn from sin and believe which means or place our faith in him which means to trust in him for our salvation Paul said to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, 20, and 21. This is Paul, New Testament, going around preaching that people would be saved. He said to the Ephesian elders, You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What did Paul go on around preaching? What did Jesus preach? Jesus went around preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. What did Paul go around preaching in the New Testament? Repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 24, 46 to 47. Jesus also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You cannot read the New Testament you cannot read the scriptures and not constantly be seeing over and over and over again that Jesus and the apostles and everybody going around preaching the gospel was preaching a message of repentance and faith. That's what they were preaching. Jesus himself, that's what he said. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. At Pentecost, where Peter, the apostle Peter led the first 3,000 people to faith in Christ. This is what he said. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And again in the next chapter, he said, Therefore repent and turn back, so that your sins may be wiped out. And the apostle Paul said, while preaching to Gentiles in the Areopagus, said this, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has set a day when He's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. You see, God has always judged sin, and He always will. And one day soon, He has set a day to judge the whole world again in righteousness by Jesus Christ and he commands all people everywhere to repent because of that day of judgment that is coming for each one of us. Do you believe that Jesus will judge you when you die? Do you believe it? Do you believe that he is also your only hope of salvation? Have you repented of sin and made a commitment to turn from all sin and to obey him as your Lord? Sin is why we're in this mess. Sin is why Jesus had to die for us. Sin is not something that we can solve on our own. We have to be made into new creations by God. We have to trust in him for our salvation and rebirth. And he will give us the Holy Spirit who will enable us to live in obedience to him. See, that's the the point that I've heard people say in the past. People uh, uh, just off the cuff say, you need to clean up your act and get into church. But the Bible says it's the other way around. The Bible says you can't clean up your act. The Bible says you can't do it until you get the Holy Spirit in you. The Bible says that you can't wage war against the flesh and against sin until you have the Holy Spirit as your power to do so. The Bible says you got to get to God first, and then He's going to clean up your act. It doesn't work the other way around. You can't do it. He's devoted almost all of these pages to letting you know you can't do it. The best of you can't do it. You can't defeat sin. That's why Jesus had to. And that's why He gives you the Holy Spirit when you come to faith in Him and trust Him. He gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can now defeat sin. He wants you. He made you for, your, made you for Himself. There is nothing more important than your life. I say your soul, but people, when they think of soul, they think this something they don't know what it is. You know what your soul is? Your soul is you. When I say your life... People think me, you know, that's my life, me, I'm alive. Yeah, that's what your soul is, you, that's your life. That's who you are, your soul. And you, who you are, your soul, your life does not end when you die from this earth. Your life will go on forever in eternity. The question is where? Where? He is giving you an opportunity right now. Now, for your sins to be wiped clean forever. Will you trust him and turn from sin to him? He has not offered to be your Savior and not your Lord. He has not not offered to be your Lord and not your Savior. It's not either or, it's both and. He wants to be your Lord and your Savior. That's the only offer that he's laid on the table. The question is, will you take it? Is anything else worth giving that offer up? God has laid the offer of eternal life that starts now on the table. All you have to do is take it. Is there anything worth not Picking that offer up. Are drugs worth giving that offer up? Is money worth giving that offer up? Is pleasure worth giving that offer up? Is another person on this earth worth giving that offer up? Nothing. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world? and yet loses or forfeits himself. I want you to seriously, seriously ask yourself, is there any sin in this life that is worth me holding on to and not letting go of so that I can pick up the offer of salvation that God is extending to me? Is any sin worth it? And the answer is emphatically, no. Nothing's worth it. If I, I'll give you one last example and close. Think of your favorite dessert. You got it? All right, now let's take it down a notch. Think of your favorite candy. I assume people like dessert better than candy, but I don't know. All right, now let's take it down a little bit more. Think of a food that you kind of like, but it's just okay. Now, whatever that one is, the one that you kind of like, but it's just okay. Would you ever take this offer if I gave it to you? For me, Probably broccoli. I like it, but it's just okay. If someone had sat a plate of broccoli in front of me, and don't tell me how good your broccoli is. Just, let's just go with my broccoli. <laughs> if someone had set a plate of my broccoli in front of me and said, I give, you, I give you a choice. I'm offering this plate of broccoli to you on one circumstance after you eat it you die are you willing to give your life to eat that plate of broccoli no <laughs> thank you no and that's that's not even comparable to what i'm trying to tell you about sin and eternity god is offering eternal life in a world with no sin and no pain and no sorrow for billions and trillions and zillions and whatever bigger words, years, and it never ends, ever. And he says the alternative is hell where you will be in torment for the same amount of time, forever. And your sin is like that plate of broccoli. It's something that's okay, but in the end it's really not all that great. But I'm not willing to give up this broccoli for eternal life. I'd rather eat it and die. And that's how countless, countless people are in this world today. That's how I used to be. And if if you'd be honest, I, I think you would all say that's how you used to be, if not today. I'm not willing to give up this temporary momentary sin to take what God has given me, I'd rather just stick with it and die. And I'm just saying, just search your heart and ask yourself, is there anything in this life worth not walking away for from in order to have an eternal relationship with God? Anything. And I'm telling you, there's not. And so if you've never made that decision, if you've never decided, okay, you know what? I'm ready. I've been trying to clean up my act, and I can't do it. I don't have the power to do so. I've been trying to let go of this sin, and honestly, I can't. But I want to. And you've promised me that the God and the Holy Spirit will allow me to do that, and that I can have Him and turn away from this sin. I'm not saying I want Jesus to be my Savior. I want Him to save me on the last day, but I have no desire for Him to be my Lord. I'm not going to obey Him. I'm not going to turn from sin. I'll just see Him when I get there. That's not the offer that I'm extending. It is that I am willing to trust in Jesus to save me and that I will turn from sin to Him. Because if you turn to Jesus, you have to be turning from something. You can't turn to Jesus without being without being turning from something. And what's that something that he's saying to turn from? Sin. And I'm just saying do it. Go for it. Make the decision. Make the commitment today. You know what? All bets are off. I'm done. I'm giving it all up. I'm making the decision today. I'm turning from sin for the rest of my life. I'm going to follow my Jesus, and I'm going to follow him in obedience. I'm going to live my life for him because what he's got for me, this world doesn't even compare to offer. There's nothing this world can give me that Jesus, that trumps what Jesus is offering me. I don't want anything but Jesus. Just give me Jesus. I want him. If you've never made that decision, I beg you to make that decision today and to tell me, let me know that you've made that decision. But whether that's a decision that you have yet to make or have made, you know people who have yet to make it. We all do. Let's pray for ourselves to come back to Christ wholeheartedly and let's pray that the people that we know that have not yet been willing to make that decision will make it that God will draw them through the Holy Spirit to himself and that they will see that nothing compares to Jesus. Would you please stand with us as we have our closing song? All right. I'm so glad y'all made it today. Um, I'm so thankful to see all of you here today. Um, I care deeply about all of you, everyone here. Um, I care about nothing more than your souls and your eternal souls. And so I, I, I plead with you to, to always search your heart and always to uh, search out whether or not you, your um, relationship with God um, has, has maybe fallen, fallen to the wayside or slid back. Uh, we all have ups and downs that we go through. And so I, I would just encourage you to, to think about the fact that God takes sin very seriously. Um, he, does, he does judge sin and he, he has and He will, and that He offers us forgiveness of those sins. He offers us clean slates that we can we can take advantage of and be forgiven completely and not have to fear um, God's judgment on the day of judgment, um, a day that we will be accepted and forgiven and accept, um, pulled close to Him and, and loved by Him and, and cherished by Him. And so... <clears throat> I'm just so glad that y'all <clears throat> made it here today and was able to, to join me today in, in reading God's word. And, and I pray that something that I said um, may help you work through these difficult books with a little bit more ease, a little bit more understanding um, of God's patience and love, um, even though it's not readily apparent all the time. He loves you. He loves you dearly and sincerely. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Father, we know that you take sin very seriously. Father, we know that what it cost you, it cost you the price of your own son, that you had to come to earth and and die because of our sinfulness. And that what you've asked from us is is a, a wholehearted commitment to just abandoning sin, walking away from sin, and pursuing you through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you that you forgive us and love us and never gave up on us and even when it appears that your justice is slow, it's because you're being patient and you're, you're being loving. And so, Father, we ask you to help us suffer through this world, that we will experience all kinds of suffering and hardship in this world, that you would help us through those times, give us comfort, give us strength, help remind us that you are close to us and near, and that all we need is you and that beautiful future that you have in store for us, a future of... of, of of a life where there's no sin, no sorrow, no pain. We love you, Father. We thank you for your amazing, undying, and faithful love for us. Help us go out into the world and be perfect examples of your children. Children who love you and come to you and run to you when we fail and who know that we are loved by you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.